the, the reason why the questions about algorithmic bias are so relevant for diversity, equity, and inclusion is because that is where we are most likely to see harms occur. Most of the time it's a trade-off. So doing or uh, making a model fairer to one group means that you possibly are reducing the performance of the model to um, another group. So how do we justify that? Welcome to Solar Spotlight, Conversations on Learning Analytics. This podcast series is produced by SOLAR, the Society for Learning Analytics Research, to engage the wider community with leading research, practice, and key issues in learning analytics. My name is Maren Scheffel, and I'm co-hosting this episode today with Nia Dow. I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm happy to be here with Marin. I'm Nia Dow. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Education at the University of California at Irvine. The topic that we will explore with our two guests today is bias. But before we get to that, I will let the guests introduce themselves. Hi, I'm uh, Shamya Karumbaya. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon University's Human Computer Interaction Institute. I study ways to promote student engagement and learning in adaptive and artificially intelligent educational systems. My work often involves building uh, statistical and machine learning models to understand uh, complex educational constructs. And more recently, I've been investigating issues of bias in these systems. Hi, my name is Rene Kizulcic. I'm an assistant professor at Cornell University in the Department of Information Science. I'm also the director of the Future of Learning Lab here at Cornell, where we study technology and education and how people use technology in education, uh, the impacts of technology in education, and how data that is collected through these technologies can be used to understand better how people are learning and how to support teachers and parents and other stakeholders in education to support students better. Thank you very much. Um, now to get to the topic of this episode, bias. How do you define bias relative to the work that you're doing? Bias can occur in a number of places, unfortunately, in education. And it's not really something uh, new that has occurred with technology. There has always been bias in the education system. Uh, we've usually thought of it as um, discrimination or unequal opportunities to access to education, for instance. Um, sometimes it has cropped up as achievement gaps between different groups of students in an education system. Uh, but nowadays, when, when we hear the word bias, we often think about algorithms and we think about the data that is used in order to build these algorithms being biased and um, and those biases then coming back into the decisions that are being made or the way that the data is represented. And then the, the bias has an effect on the, on the actions that people are taking based on it. And all of those are, are, are uh, examples of bias. Very often uh, there is a question of uh, under what circumstances is a bias a bad thing? Uh, in some cases in education, a, a bias is used in order to mitigate existing inequalities such as in the case of affirmative action. And there it is in some ways a, a positive bias to work against longstanding inequities in, in, a, in a system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Bias usually is always uh, associated with something negative, but it can actually be used in 
for something positive as well. That's true. Well, I, I just want to acknowledge that there is probably no consensus for one definition of bias out there. But personally, the stance I take is a definition of bias uh, as the possible sources of downstream harm that can lead to uh, societally unfavorable outcomes in specific students or populations. In your view, what are some of the most potent ways algorithmic bias influences education and perhaps subpopulations of individuals that are most likely to experience it? I think algorithmic bias often comes up uh, as a result of data that is collected in ways that uh, are, are biased. And that can be for a few different reasons. One may be the data collection is designed for a certain group of, of students or a certain context in which learning happens. And then it fails to capture the attributes of a different group of students or a different context. Uh, one great example of that is in the, uh, in the context of informal learning versus formal learning environments. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in cross-cultural contexts where the way learning occurs can be, can be very different. Uh, uh, my, my colleague Amy Ogan at, at Carnegie Mellon University has, has been researching how people use intelligent tutoring systems across different parts of the world. And there are large differences in how students go about it, how teachers go about it. And depending on how data is collected, missing those differences could result in bias. In other situations, bias can occur because the data is underrepresenting certain groups. And so models that are based on those data sets uh, are then not very accurate for those groups of students, or they might be um, inaccurate in ways that are uh, not just random, but in ways that are discriminating against those groups of students. Uh, so those are some ways in which the, the data can result in, uh, in bias. There's also ways in which the models themselves can, can be more or less sensitive to uh, those biases in the data. And uh, there's, uh, it's an active area of research to figure out how to adjust these kinds of models to mitigate those biases, uh, to put in fairness constraints that make sure that when the model is, is getting trained that it has to have a, a certain threshold of fairness so you can get a guarantee of, of its fairness with respect to certain metrics. But, but finally, and I think very importantly, there's also the question of how the model is then used by, by people uh, who come with their own biases uh, and who look at the data not without, without those conceptions, without those stereotypes, um, but who will interpret it in light of what they are already thinking very often, right? You might have a confirmation bias that occurs and you might have other cognitive biases and social biases that, that play into it. And that last step is actually one that might be uh, uh, much more potent in terms of the impact that it has than, than the algorithm's unfairness or bias itself. So I guess we can understand the influence of bias as um, allocative harm versus um, representational harm. So harms that could be um, could be related to differences in allocation of resources. For instance, in the systems I study, which are adaptive learning systems, if uh, a model that predicts students' knowledge is biased, then it could lead to a student being offered uh, problems that are below their skill levels and hence uh, leading to lost learning opportunity or missed learning opportunities and eventually issues of potential uh, disengagement or um, 
uh, lower learning in those students. So that's one possible way of understanding harms caused by bias. Another one is uh, representational harms, wherein, for instance, if African-American uh, speech is being tagged as toxic in MOOC discussion forums, that could be a form of um, representational bias that could lead to students from certain subpopulations feeling represented in a negative light. Mm -hmm. So another question to the two of you, what would you say is the current state of bias in education? Where are we at? So I believe uh, right now there's a lot of focus on uh, algorithmic biases that get introduced during downstream stages of um, algorithm development, which specifically is probably along uh, model development and model evaluation. Uh, my dissertation sort of hypothesized that uh, biases get introduced upstream that there are upstream sources of biases. Specifically, I studied uh, theory, design, and data collection method as possible sources that could uh, introduce potential biases in uh, algorithms and uh, more broadly adaptive learning systems. So I believe like um, right now, the focus is more towards just algorithms and algorithm model development and evaluation. A possible direction in which I hope the field moves is shifting the focus from there to also looking at other sort of sources through which biases could get introduced. I think one of the places where bias occurs the most is really in how people are using algorithms and how people interpret those algorithms and the explainability of the algorithms. Uh, even a perfect algorithm that uh, does predict correctly in all cases can be used in ways that is uh, deeply unfair and is uh, causing a lot of bias in ways that is measurable. And uh, one of the big questions then is how do you present algorithms? How do you make them usable uh, in ways that mitigate those biases? And I think one direction for understanding this better is to use um, Wizard of Oz kind of uh, studies that have been used for a long time in human computer interaction where we knew that we didn't have systems that could do tasks of the future that you know now we're getting closer to being able to do them but but back then people just pretended that it did the right thing or they had a human doing it in the background in order to study the human computer interaction aspect of of that interaction and how to design it well we can pursue these two paths in parallel really in, in our research in, in learning analytics uh, by, uh, on the one hand, looking at how algorithms are interpreted, how they're used, how to design them for effective uses, for uses that are mostly unbiased, uh, as well as, on the other hand, developing the algorithms, focusing on the theory that informs them, as Shamya was saying, focusing on the data collection that goes into it and making sure that the modeling is as unbiased as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, we already talked a little bit about subpopulations and how they might be um, touched by bias or how, how, that, how that could influence their, their life, basically. Specifically with um, the influence of bias towards diversity, equity and inclusion, what is your stance on that and how does your research maybe attempt to address these issues? Diversity, equity and inclusion is a, is a topic in education that has been uh, top of mind for a long time. And the questions about bias in algorithms are, are really not new to, to, that, uh, to that topic, to that concern. 
And the, the reason why the questions about algorithmic bias are so relevant for diversity, equity, inclusion is because that is where we are most likely to see harms occur as uh, we're seeing data sets in which groups of students are underrepresented, in which uh, inequities are already in the data. Uh, for example, uh, achievement gaps, differential uh, levels of dropout, uh, differential levels of uh, academic uh, punishments being being handed out to students, you know, and, and the list goes on. And so it, it is highly likely, and we're seeing this in some of the early work that has come out on this topic, that the models will be biased in ways that are uh, negatively affecting uh, groups that have been underrepresented, that have been underserved in, in education already. And that that's, you know, depending, dependent very much on the cultural context, the, the country context, uh, where we've, we're seeing different groups uh, being, being those groups uh, that, that have suffered the most in education systems. And one of the goals and one of the hopes really is that algorithms are going to help reduce those gaps. Um, a cynical view is that it'll just make them worse. And uh, unfortunately, we've seen some examples of where gaps are, are widened rather than narrowed. Uh, and, and I think that is why this is such an important topic for us to, uh, to problematize right now before we move forward and implement even more systems that use data, that use algorithms to support teachers, to support students directly, to support their parents. Um, because if the trust in those kinds of systems and those kinds of algorithms uh, is undermined by reports of uh, bias, like we've seen in many other domains, such as in, in healthcare, in, in uh, criminal justice, it would be a real disservice to the potential benefits that could be gained from data and algorithms in education. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in terms of DEI, I want to answer this question. I mean, um, there are several ways in which we could look at the intersection between bias and issues of DEI. I specifically want to highlight representation bias uh, in, in my answer. Um, and there are several reasons for this. That's because, you know, often, often most of uh, most of the research studies that uh, in sort of influence uh, the design and development of uh, adaptive learning systems, specifically the systems that I study, tend to be uh, conducted in Western countries, and they uh, even in cases where uh, you know when there are small scale experiments, they often tend to recruit a convenient sample uh, from even in these contexts, which for instance, in here, it could be like undergraduate, middle-class undergraduate students, for instance. And this could be due to practical constraints of the research projects, but that again leads to the questions of um, uh, representation bias um, by not having um, uh, population from different subgroups represented um, in the design of theories or, uh, you know, um, design or um, uh, data collection methods uh, of these systems. And even when we have access to larger data sets in the cases that of the systems that I study, um, even when we have more diverse students as opposed to when there are small scale experiments or uh, uh, and such, it's often still hard for us to collect student demographics data and for right reasons, which is uh, around the concerns of student privacy. But then again, that leads to uh, limitations to checking for auditing for 
potential representation biases that could occur in several different ways in the systems. So um, that has a direct implication because then all the assumptions that we are making in the design and development of the systems are now invalidated for those groups that are not represented in these studies. I think in this way, I guess there is a direct sort of a connection between issues of DEI and bias. Um, and one way in which you asked uh, how uh, my research could potentially be addressing this is um, one of my studies looked at potential representation bias in theory where a very uh, a commonly, a widely accepted theory, theory of affect dynamics uh, uh, was investigated to check for potential representation bias because we saw that in our literature review that most of the studies that did conform to these uh, model were mostly con conducted in the United States and with undergraduate students. But in the studies that were conducted in other countries, especially from global south, for instance, Philippines, wasn't really conforming to this model as well as the studies conducted in the United States. So just an example of ways in which we could potentially be auditing and be uh, ways in which we could be more mindful of representation bias in different aspects that shape automated decision-making in learning analytics and AI more broadly. Yeah, I'd love to follow up on, on that by, by adding that uh, one other place where we're seeing this play out, the representation bias and who has the, the power and the resources to build models, to collect data, to organize the data in ways that permits uh, the building of models. It is usually institutions that, that serve uh, more well-off populations, that, that serve uh, populations of students uh, who might be paying more for, for those institutions. Um, and it's usually not the institutions that are serving uh, the broad access, institutions that are serving a large population, very diverse populations. And that can create um, a problem when it comes to taking models that have been developed off the shelf, so to speak, uh, and deploying them at institutions uh, where they were not developed, where they were not validated. And the biases that could come up when transferring uh, models from one environment to another environment, uh, especially when the environments are different in, in systematic ways, uh, because those systematic ways are in fact the, the reason why it wasn't possible to, to build a model uh, in, in one environment. We saw this when we used PISA data, which is a, a large um, a study that is done internationally across uh, many countries around the world to measure uh, middle schoolers, math, English, and science uh, knowledge. Uh, it's, a, it's a really large undertaking that is done every, uh, every few years. And uh, we, we use that data in order to test what happens if we take the, the US-based model and we export it to other countries. Can we still predict students' math achievement based on uh, a number of, of predictors that are available? And this includes surveys of the students, of the parents, of the teachers, uh, a number of demographics. They, I mean, they collect a lot of data and they put a lot of thought and effort into making sure that the data is collected uh, very cleanly uh, and in a way that makes sense across different cultures as well. And what we saw there is that the US model did quite well in the US as one would expect, but when you applied it to other countries, the model's performance degraded linearly with 
the distance of that country to the US in terms of its human development index. So as you went to countries that were uh, less well resourced, uh, the model was less accurate in predicting students' uh, math performance, science performance, reading performance. But interestingly, what we found is that this was not a limitation of the, the, the location. It wasn't that maybe in uh, Zimbabwe, things are just generally harder to predict. There's more uncertainty in general that there might be more power outages because we had the data for Zimbabwe and we were able to look at how well does a model perform trained with that data in that local context. And there we find that you can do just as well as the US model did in the United States mm. or in any other country. And so what that suggests is that there is a real importance in collecting data locally uh, for those environments, because the predictors in the model that matter in one region might be very different than the ones that matter in another region. For instance, in the US, the number of books at home uh, has, has long been known to be a predictor of, of students' achievement, because books, books at home were seen as an indicator of how much parents cared about the education of their child, how well educated the parents were themselves. Um, that might not translate, and it didn't in our study, uh, to other countries where, where books in the shelves are, are not really a good proxy for this mm -hmm. and, and not very realistic. And so the importance of collecting data in the places where we are trying to deploy the models and building models based on that data uh, can really not be underestimated. What are some of the more broader ways researchers can attempt to mitigate this in their own research? Well, to begin with, I think fundamentally as a community, we should probably um, we should probably acknowledge that it is likely problematic to assume population validity when it comes to algorithmic systems. I think in the baseline, we should all fundamentally question whether if there is a model that's making automated decisions in uh, learning analytic systems, we need to audit that to see whether or not it is uh, equitable to all the students of populations that we want to serve. While I say that, I understand the fundamental uh, issue that you know some of our listeners might be thinking like, how on earth do we know what even is all the demographic variables that we need to think about when we think of uh, subpopulations, especially in platforms like MOOC, for instance, which could be used so broadly across the world. How do we even anticipate different subpopulations? In there, I think there is also a need for us to um, sort of understand and sort of think a little more deeply about what it means to look at subgroups. Right now, um, in the literature review that I did for my dissertation, uh, one thing that was obvious, and I think this was also pointed out in the in one of the papers by Baker and Hahn, is that we mostly pay attention to categories like race, gender, and nationality. And often we do not pay attention to uh, other demographic categories, some of which I explored in my dissertation, for instance, including urbanicity, uh, socioeconomic state, uh, status, um, native language, uh, uh, international students, for instance. Um, and also there is more work is also needed in a few places that I think right now is uh, understudied uh, to an extent where I think 
it's sort of like a reckoning for us to be uh, really looking into those issues. Uh, for instance, it, I haven't seen a study so far that has really reported on bias in our field uh, on non-binary gender identities or other categories of LGBTQ identities. So there's probably like one study uh, that has examined uh, data on indigenous students. Um, and we could always talk about how it's difficult to collect data of, from certain students or population, but does that mean that we do not audit for uh, uh, potential biases for those populations? So there are uh, also when it comes to race that even though we are already uh, probably looking at racial biases, even the definition of race is problematic. Some of these categorizations are oversimplified and possibly politically influenced. Uh, um, for instance, we look at Asians wherein we actually mean like Indians versus Vietnamese versus Sri Lankan versus Philippines. And all of these, I think, need a close examination. Uh, some of these are highlighted in recent review works. I think some uh, by Baker and Hahn and some by uh, Rene, uh, Rene's own uh, paper on algorithmic bias and fairness. Um, so yeah, so I guess as a community, we are at that point where we probably need to look more into the issues of definition of subgroups and, and such, I guess. I think education is really important in, in this domain in order to make sure that we don't see biases crop up all over the place that algorithms are being deployed. And by education, I, I truly mean educating people who will be the leaders in our field to be careful about these questions and to make sure that they check the algorithms that they develop before they are deployed, not after and to keep checking how they're performing once they are deployed and to, to really be um, somewhat paranoid because they, they really should be about what could happen if these models go unchecked. Mm -hmm. And that is really a change in mindset that uh, needs to be instilled in students as they're going through our programs. And we're seeing this in many pro, you know, general computer science, machine learning classes, AI classes, are adopting an ethics uh, component, are adopting uh, components about fairness and bias. Um, and, and we should be doing the same. And I, I'm happy to see that, that, that Solar and, and other organizations are, are pushing into that direction and have started the conversation several years ago. And so uh, I, I think you know, we are ahead of the curve a little bit. And I think we should keep going on, on that line of, of, uh, of inquiry and on the line of um, instruction by making sure that students have a good curriculum about what it is that they need to be careful about. Now, we also need to understand what are the best ways or the best practices for uh, auditing such systems. And Shamia brings up the good point about, well, what are the groups that we should be paying attention to uh, that the algorithm is not being biased against? And uh, with the groups, there's, of course, cultural context, national context, uh, certain groups are protected in different countries. And so those are, are groups that uh, sort of come to mind as obvious ones uh, to, to be careful that the algorithm is not biased against. But uh, as she says, there, there are other groups as well. And it might not be enough to only focus on those that are protected by law. 
another way to look at this, however, is to think about it in terms of individual fairness, right? There's group fairness where we're thinking about differences in treatment based on one's group membership. Uh, individual fairness looks at how an individual would have been treated differently if they, if some attribute had been different for them. Uh, the idea, the premise really is that if two people look the same in, in terms of all their observable attributes, they should be treated the same way as well. Um, one of the uh, tricky things with that is, of course, how do you say that two people are the same or similar, mm -hmm. right? That, that depends once again on an inclusion of certain attributes in, in that comparison. However, uh, it, it might be easier to, to throw in a lot of attributes into that bucket of we want, we want people to be similar on all of these, uh, rather than to say, well, here's the five or the six that we care about the most, where you have to be much more judicious about the cutoff that you apply to which features matter. And, and that is a much harder question sometimes than to say, well, across these 50 features, we're saying that these, these individuals are relatively similar and should therefore receive a similar treatment. Mm -hmm. Rene brings up a great, great point. Um, I think this is like a fundamental debate in the field on individual versus subgroup fairness. I think another interesting uh, aspect for me for learning analytics is for us to take a stance um, in how we define fairness. So is it fairness or, you know, is it, do we want our algorithms to be fair to the, just the majority group, if that is serving majority population? I'm hoping that that's not the answer. Does it mean um, fair to all subgroups um, or is it fair for especially historically disadvantaged students? So if you think about affirmative action, for instance, then comes the question on, does um, thinking about fairness for historically disadvantaged students, instead of looking at it as individual fairness, the way um, Rene was talking about, then how do we justify possible um, discrimination against students who do not belong to that group? How, because most of the time it's a trade-off. So doing or uh, making a model fairer to one group means that you possibly are reducing the performance of the model to um, another group. So how do we justify that? Especially how do we justify that to uh, a parent whose student probably, whose uh, child probably doesn't belong to the historically advantaged group, then how do we uh, justify the difference in, um, in the treatment? If we all adhere to best practices to make the change, where might we be in terms of the influence of algorithmic bias in education in five to 10 years or even 15? I think there's two trends uh, that are happening at the same time. One is the adoption of technology, algorithms, um, data-based systems in education. Uh, and the other trend is the, the research and the best practices that are being published based on the research uh, in terms of fairness mitiga uh, bias mitigation, fairness promotion um, with those systems. We are seeing a lot of systems being used in uh, higher education in K-12 that uh, perform dropout prediction or achievement prediction. Um, 
these systems often go a little under the radar towards the students and the parents uh, who are not aware of, of these systems being deployed uh, in, in many, many classrooms across the United States, whether it's in higher education or in K-12. Um, at, at the same time, uh, we have very little insight into the performance of those systems because they're primarily uh, provided by companies that do not open source their code uh, or provide ways of auditing the algorithms that, that they're using. And so that is the, the fundamental conundrum really. Um, you could imagine that if we provide very clear guidance as a community about what checks should be performed and to convey to stakeholders who um, agree to contracts with those companies uh, to want to see a report on, on fairness before they sign the contract, that we, we might uh, get quite far in terms of um, establishing a, a baseline, at least, of, sort of a minimum level of, of fairness checks uh, that these algorithms have to adhere to. I, I think that would be one of the uh, outcomes that would be quite desirable. And for us as a community to work towards establishing what that would look like um, as we've seen in some other domains, such as in criminal justice, uh, where, uh, where these checks are, have, been have been performed and where there is uh, now clearer guidance on what it means for, some, for a system to be fair, what it means for it to be biased, and what levels of, of bias can be acceptable and what levels are just not acceptable. I want to answer this question in terms of um, possibly the sh possibly thinking about it as shifting power that we have as people who are in the forefront of develop designing and developing learning analytic systems. How can we bring stakeholder stakeholder voice into bias definitions or into bias audits? For me, um, in ten to fifteen years, I would hope that we make these black boxes that are these algorithms um, explainable and interpretable enough that stakeholders can then have a, an opinion on what, what it means for them to have a system that is fair, um, unbiased. <laughs> um, shifting power in a way that these definitions involve the voice of public and not just of people who right now occupy the chair in the around the table. Like it, it could mean um, along with uh, bringing stakeholder voice, it would also mean more diverse voices within the research groups, within the learning learning analytics communities from Global South or from other demographics, which right now may be underrepresented in uh, even uh, defining some of these uh, aspects. Uh, so basically making sure that we have representation from, from different demographics, different demographic groups in the foundation of what it means to build fairer systems, uh, fairer adaptable systems in um, learning analytics. Thank you, <laughs> wonderful. It's really wonderful to listen to you guys and the work you're doing, it's really great. In all our Solar Spotlight episodes, we play a little game with our guests called Two Truths and a Lie. But before we listen to what might or might not be true about Shamia and Renee, here is the solution from the last episode, when Shibani and Rogers talked to Andy Crum. 
I did my dissertation on how and why learning management systems are basically everywhere. I regularly work with uh, surgeons, but I am uh, very squeamish and I am an avid swimmer. Yeah, so my lie was that I'm an avid swimmer. Um, in fact, I did do my dissertation on how and why learning management systems are used uh, pretty much everywhere now. Um, and then in my role in the medical school, uh, combining uh, that role with my uh, interest and uh, background in learning analytics, I regularly work with um, a variety of assessment systems here. So I have backpacked alone in 10 countries so far. I learned how to ride a bike when I was six years old. And I have two cats. I say the cats are the lie. <laughs> I think so too. Because the way you stated the first one sounds really cool. Very convincing, yeah. <laughs> because you said so far, like you already have plans to do more. <laughs> my last name is Polish. My first job was developing websites for people. My undergraduate degree is in philosophy. Hmm. Hmm. I have no clue. I think it's the second one is a lie. I'll go with Nia on this. <laughs> yeah, so thank you again for, for joining this podcast. This was really nice talking to you. Yeah. To you and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. So this is really, really cool. Thank you for listening to the Solar Spotlight Conversations on Learning Analytics. To not miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast. You can find all available episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Look out for the upcoming Solar webinar with Olga Ryberg on June 21st. Olga will talk about unpacking privacy and learning analytics for improved learning at scale. Also, a few months ago, Solar launched a one-stop shop to help you find learning analytics PhD thesis. More than 20 theses have already been added to our hub. We invite you to check them out on the Solar website, share your PhD thesis details, and spread the word to other PhD graduates. My name is Nia Dow, and together with Marin Shuffle, I have been talking with Shamya Karambaha and Renee Kizilchik about bias. If you would like to continue the conversation and guess the lies, please tweet us at Solar Research using the hashtag SolarSpotlight. Until next time.